0: Hello listeners, welcome to This is the Place, a podcast series from The Common Magazine on the New Books Network. The Common publishes literature and art with a modern sense of place. I'm Emily Everett, Managing Editor of the Magazine and host of the channel. Today we'll be talking to Wyatt Townley about her poem, Instructions for the End Game, which appeared in Issue 21 of The Common. Wyatt Townley is Poet Laureate of Kansas Emerita. Her books include four collections of poetry, Rewriting the Body, the breathing field, perfectly normal, and the afterlives of trees. Wyatt's work has been read on NPR, featured in American Life and Poetry, and published in journals ranging from New Letters to Newsweek, North American Review to the Paris Review, Yoga Journal to Scientific American. Formerly a dancer, Wyatt has developed and trademarked her own yoga system, Yoganetics, now practiced on six continents. Wyatt Townley, thanks so much for joining us today.
1: Hi, Emily. So wonderful to be here with you.
0: We always like to start off by sort of setting the scene since, you know, since we're a magazine that's about place. Would you tell us where you're calling from and describe what it's like there?
1: I'm calling from my house. I'm in Shawnee Mission, Kansas, and we flank the woods here. It's lush, green uh, warmth. It's, a, it's just a, a, a thousand shades of green, wafting in the breeze warmth we're up in the canopy here um, with the woods right right by us that's our next door neighbor and um, we've got tremendous wildlife uh, I don't see anything here but deer and foxes we have at night we have the owls come and the coyotes come and serenade us and <laughs> it's just really fabulous there's there's never a, a boring moment
0: that sounds really, really lovely. Would you start us off by reading your poem from
1: Issue 21? Sure. Instructions for the end game: To see the unseeable, measure its shadow. It takes eight telescopes, six mountains, four continents, ten days. In the middle of Virgo is a black hole. More massive than six billion suns. Hardly a virgin. Her mattress sags in the dark, warping everything. Down here, our hips dig their trenches from bed to earth. A one-way slide out of time. Sex and death, old friends. From earth to sky, just one more step on the staircase. The steps are steep. None who enter leave.
0: Thanks so much for reading that. That was a beautiful reading. I would love to know how you came to write this poem and sort of what inspired it. Like, how did you come to it?
1: Well, uh, gosh, I'm a uh, I'm, I'm very interested in all things skyward, uh, <laughs> from weather to stars. In 2017. Uh, it turns out we turned the Earth into a, a an enormous telescope using eight observatories uh, on six mountains, four continents, over a 10-day period. And wow. what we discovered was a galaxy, which we now call uh, M87, in Virgo, uh, which had a black hole in it, and we, of course we had never seen an image of a black hole before, but we we saw its shadow, and this black hole was the mass of it's six billion suns. I mean that you know that's a lot of sucky, <laughs> that's sucky <laughs> gravity right there, yes. and and I just loved, and so this then this happened in 2017. Well, in 2019, it took two years to compile all the data from all these observatories uh, over just a 10-day period. But two years later, the Times came out with an article. I'm not sure where it first appeared, but I saw it in the Times first um, mm-hmm. uh, about this discovery and uh, that, it, you know, it, hey, we have a picture of it. There, there really is, you can photograph a black hole using the Earth as your telescope uh, if you uh, photograph its shadows. <laughs> it was a kind of a ring-like, it's a circular shape, of course, just like Einstein thought. And, um, and it, it, you know, it warps the fabric of space just like we warp a mattress uh, when, we would, when we sleep and other stuff. And so, uh, you know, and, and the fact that it was in Virgo was perfect because yeah. I got to use the Virgo and the Virgin and the mattress and the whole thing just was completely a poem before I even came upon it, and uh, I certainly thought it was worthy of a poem. So there you go.
0: That's fair. It sort of reminds me of what people always say about writers that they're really just like good observers, and I, sure. it feels like you, you snatched that right out of right out of the headlines.
1: <laughs> well, yeah, I, I, and I do that a lot. But uh, you know, I think that poetry really is something that is all around us all the time, and so our mission is simply to. Awaken to it and to recognize it. So um, you know, I, I really think all of it, all of it is poetry. The whatever it is, the whatever it is, in however we feel about it, and if we can find the poetry that's there, if we can, you know, it's it really is in front of us, behind us, underneath us, and above us. It's and it's through us. It's we're we're a part of. We are a part of this poem.
0: I'm I'm curious was creating poetry always like that for you or did you have to kind of like allow yourself? Like I would think as a beginning writer, you would think I couldn't write a poem about the, the the science headlines. You would think that those were like separate things. And I'm curious, like, did was it always natural for you to sort of bring those things together or did you have to kind of like allow yourself to, 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 to marry huh. those things?
1: Well, I think it's a, a kind of a lifelong process, this, um, recognition of poetry, or or some other people might call it different things. But uh, um, certainly I began writing because of a trauma in my childhood. I had nowhere to go but the page to uh, tell the truth and find support. And so that's what got me going. uh, The page was my safe space. And uh, And then since it's a safe space, um, anything can happen there. And if anything can happen there and find organization there and find a way of being spoken there, eventually. (laughs) Eventually, (laughs) poems don't always happen right away on the page for me, in fact. But that's a separate issue. Um, So um, let's see. I lost my chain there, but uh, I'll pick it up somewhere.
0: I mean, I was wondering if you like how how you came to write like I'm thinking the poems that you've you've written for the Common, mm-hmm. and I saw that you wrote another one that's sort of I I think astronomical, which was in Scientific American, if I'm remembering correctly.
1: Right. Yeah. Well, I I, I love I love all things sky, and so uh and so living in Kansas here, uh, I you know our state motto is ad astra per Aspra, through this to the stars through difficulty. And uh, we've got a lot of sky here. And, in fact, a lot of astronauts hail from Kansas because oh, really? of that. Yeah, uh, a lot of them. And uh, so I think it's just a natural thing to go out and uh, get under it, whether it's weather or what's behind the weather. And, uh, of course, when I was a child, Dad was always setting up his telescope in the yard and, and pulling us out there to see things. And, of course, he he'd spend, you know, 45 minutes setting up the telescope and then, oh, right. and then we'd go out there and ooh and off ah for a matter of seconds and then uh, be released, poor guy. And, uh, <laughs> but he, you know, he set the stage for a lifelong interest uh, skyward for me and uh, I have no background in science, but everything really comes down to physics. I mean, uh, and as a former dancer who's obsessed with motion still, I, I have, uh, great passion for physics, but um, but not the math. And so, uh, you know, black holes and string theory and relativity and uh, you know, exploring time in terms of space. Uh, that is fascinating to me, and of course, that's what Einstein did. But it's what dancers do. Uh, dance being the only art actually that explores both time and space simultaneously. <laughs> So, uh, yeah, it's it, um, and, and just to, to continue this thought, um, it was thrilling. So I have no background in science, but I did subscribe even when I was in college um, majoring in dance. Uh, I subscribed to Scientific American uh, and kept my subscription going for many years until I couldn't keep up with it anymore. But uh, it was a shock and a great honor when editor David Sobel, who's just a wonderful, wonderful and esteemed author, reached out to me to create a poem for the magazine. I mean, it was just a dream come true. It was a commission come true. And so uh, I, I got to write, I wrote about the Hubble Deep Field, which was discovered 25 years ago by uh, the then director of the Hubble uh, Telescope Library, Dr. Robert Williams. He, um, he got 10% of Hubble's time, 10% of the time. He got to look at whatever he wanted to, being director. And so he was looking at nothing. He was just looking and looking, and his his colleagues ridiculed him and made fun of him. Well, it turns out he discovered the Hubble Deep Field, and all that nothingness was a, was a great somethingness. And... Uh, And now it turns out the poem not only appeared in Scientific American, but it's going to hang in the the, uh, Hubble Telescope Space Science Institute there, uh, home of the Hubble in Baltimore. So it just was a whole um, circle. Uh, That's incredible. That is incredible. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. It's just, uh, I'm kind of getting chills. It's just a... Well, it's just like the black hole, a circle. And like we all are uh, because of physics, the way we are carved by motion into uh, curves. So. Yeah,
0: I, I do think that there's something about astronomy that feels very philosophical. And I, I, I think that's what I love so much about your poem, this sort of marriage between the two things, sort of like the humans and, and the cosmos and sort of looking at humanity in the sort of like general philosophical way as opposed to, you know, sort of individual
1: Yes. Well, thank you. Thank you. Um, we are not separate. <laughs> We're made of the same stuff, right? We're made of the same stuff that's out there, making other stuff. And uh, it's it's hard to remember that. And I constantly remind my students of this and myself that we are ourselves nature. You know, we don't have to go out in nature. We can go <laughs> into nature uh, by closing the eyes and exploring the inner landscape uh, in yoga, for instance, or just on a single breath. So, um, you know, we are part of the natural world.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I, that's a perfect segue into what I was going to ask you to do next, um, which is to read another poem for us, which I, I really enjoy the, the aspect of nature in this poem. Um, so just to let our listeners know at The Common, we've been lucky enough to publish four of your poems and I, I wanted you to read one. I couldn't decide which one, but ultimately I decided on this, which is called Waiting for the Call. Um, it just, I think it feels really different to me from the poem we just heard because its it feels more personal and individual. So would you read that for us?
1: Sure, 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 I will. Uh, this is from my book, Rewriting the Body, my most recent one that's out there. Waiting for the Call. Today the trees are loud between the cardinal's Owls, chickadees, the yowl of something small with fur. Wind in the hands of the cottonwood. Squirrels commotion overhead. A girl can hardly think. She steps outside for rest from what's inside. Everything's talking at once, except the phone. Just lying there, her brother on a bed post-op. Tubes flowing from the holes they made in him. Now only birds make their calls, and the neighbor's dog repeats what's just been said and said. Life and more life. Still, the phone plays dead.
0: Thanks so much for reading that. I really enjoy how precise that world is. It's very vivid and lively and loud. There's lots happening. But at the same time, it's sort of frozen in in that waiting period, waiting for the phone call.
1: Yes. And and that's a moment we've all had, isn't it? Um, It absolutely is. Waiting for the call. And, uh, you know, which is harder, the call itself or waiting for the call?
0: Yeah. Yeah. Would would you tell us just like something about the process of putting a poem like like that together? Is is there a lot of revision, or is this pretty close oh. to sort of what what first comes out on the
1: page? <laughs> no, no, no. I'm not a first first draft, best draft that kind of person. I am mm-hmm. an endless reviser, a la Paul Valery's. The poem is never finished. It's finally abandoned. <laughs> um, so, I, I push through dozens and dozens of drafts, um, and I love it. I am a lover of process, the whole bloody, uh, messy, surgical process of, of really uh, giving myself lots of permission to mess up, make big messes, to fail and to galump around the page. You know, it's just, it, you know, I, I write with a pencil first, at poetry. I write with a pencil, with a great eraser, and I finally... Finally, got the best. I have a black pencil uh, with black lead in it with a black eraser. And I got these through the library. I'm just so delighted they gave me a whole bunch of them. And you sharpen it, and it comes to a beautiful black point. And in these black erasers, they erase, you know, a pencil is only as good as its eraser, right? So, and, and they stay moist. Through time, those those orange ones, oh, forget them. They yeah. uh, they start mu- mu- muddying everything up if you uh, use it. So this black thing, it's just heaven. And so, uh, and I do a lot of scratching out, and I use the bat. I write on a, an old uh, torn up uh, clipboard that has a, a a circle out where the coffee that I had put on it burned through the vinyl. <laughs> uh, this is decades old, and I, I write on that thing, and and I use um, recycled, you know, a, a paper that's been printed on one side. As a writer, I know you have lots of papers around that have been printed on one side, and so I use the other side to create on, and so it's all very scribbly and um, lots of room to to fail all over the page, and and that's that's a process that I continue to use draft after draft after draft, Um, just, I mean, it gets less and less messy uh, along the way, but I, I really give myself, I just love, well, for instance, as opposed to, Oh, let's just pick dance as opposed to dance. You know, you, you, you go out there and all of your training and all of your rehearsal gets this one opportunity in front of an audience to be shared, uh, over many minutes or even hours. So, um, uh, you know, you get one chance and, mm. and I love, God, I love poetry. I've always done both. I've always been a mover and a, uh, a mover, a, a poetry in motion person also. Um, so, but you get so many chants. I mean, everything yeah. is just rehearsal on the stage. Everything is just brainstorming and development and creation. And uh, it, and it's just such a lovely way to be uh, and to yes oneself forward uh, along the, you know, endless way um, when nobody is watching. And it's just a, a beautiful of course. Once you get start get collecting rejections, that's a... That's a a different manner, but, you know, heck, that's just one more rejection toward the acceptance. So I just love this whole process. And I'm very fortunate. Oh, I'm sorry. Go ahead.
0: Oh, no, I was just going to say, I really, I just really appreciate hearing you say this. You're giving me so much joy because I sometimes find revision to be really frustrating and and long and and sometimes it feels a lot. Sometimes it it feels like work to me, whereas like writing something brand new feels like play. Um, oh, but maybe I, I, I can think yeah. about it like you do. <laughs>
1: I think it's the same thing, Emily. I, I mean, when work and play are one, then boom, we're there, right? <laughs> when work and play, I mean, I don't care what it is, if we're doing dishes or, uh, you know, working out or tasks, uh, if, if we can have some fun doing it and uh, gosh, I, I mean, I really just don't see the difference. Why should we make a Why should we make a line between work and play or between creating and editing? I mean, there's, there's vision, right? There's vision, there's the creation, but then the, the revision is just as valid, right? It's a part of the vision. And, um, and I just feel like it's, you know, it, yes, it may be more cold blooded and, and <laughs> perhaps some distance, but um, God, in the, in the taking away of whatever isn't the poem or whatever isn't the story or whatever ever isn't the sculpture, right, in Michelangelo's case. Um, that's just so beautiful in letting go of all the unnecessary. Uh, what what a privilege of, of being able to shed like that. And I'm, I'm so lucky to be married to a writer, uh, my husband, Roderick Townley, who is a fellow poet and author uh, of, oh gosh, he's published in five <laughs> genres uh, books yeah. and books and books. And, uh, and so we, you know, it's, this is now then 24 seven around this house. Um, I mean, we are each other's in-house editors. And, <laughs> and so the, the process then gets to be shared with a very fine in-house editor. And it's, we're so very blessed to, to, to let this kind of, you know, I, I mean, it's really a love affair. I mean, I just do feel I'm kind of married to the page And then I'm married to my man also. And so it's just a really happy, um, I mean, I'm just making this up right now. But uh, it's just a a great privilege.
0: Yeah, no, that sounds like a very lovely writerly home that you have. Absolutely. So nice. Um, And, you know, you're right, too, that there are some, there's always some magical moments in revision, too, where you find out that, you know right. the piece. The piece is about something you didn't realize it was about, or it's going in a direction that you didn't see the first time. You know, there's definitely a lot of magic that happens in that phase. You oh, are,
1: correct. yeah. And and I mean, even it's different being a fiction writer. I, I'm I'm sure, um, but but just being a poet. You know, God, if you can just find that one word with the right number of syllables and the right <laughs> sound sound of vowels. You know, to make the line to make the line, you know, move right. Oh, it's just um, euphoric. It's just, I just love the process.
0: Yeah, I I can tell. That's so, I'm really inspired to hear that. I was looking over your website before this conversation. You know, looking you up, and I'm really intrigued by this interplay that you described there between writing and movement. You know, first as a mm-hmm. dancer and now as a yoga teacher. And I'm I'm just going to quote you here. You write today these two paths of poetry and poetry and motion have fused. I write often in the theme of body as home, and I teach yoga as a means of achieving a poetic state. As far as I'm concerned, it's all poetry. Would you talk more about that idea about sort of combining those two things or or feeling that those aren't two separate things?
1: Yes, and I did feel they were very separate things, and I felt most of my life, this has been a recent, maybe in the last five or five or eight years uh, development for me, but most of my life, I felt like I'm living a double life. I've always written poetry. I've always danced or moved. That's turned into uh, uh, being a yoga teacher. And uh, I have I've felt, you know, I, I was straddling two quite different worlds. In fact, polar, uh, polar art forms. I mean, poetry being arguably the most uh, refined of the verbal realms and dance and yoga, arguably the most refined of the physical realms. Mm-hmm. So there I was doing the splits kind of thing. But um, really, uh, I, and I think this is just a, a part of maturing. Um, things are, I'm connecting more, disparate things are coming together just in my mind. And in terms of poetry and movement, uh, you know, what poetry does to the mind, what poetry does to the mind, yoga does to the body. Right in terms of expanding us into a spaciousness where we can exist more freely and without limitation. And so that's what I'm trying to do in in yoga as a teacher and as a practitioner, is to put the body into a poetic state where it can move beyond uh, its imagined limitations into a sense of limitlessness, where everything is connected, and, and this maybe sounds woo woo, but it's not. It's um, <laughs> you know, it's it's really. Um, I mean, it's a it's a it's it's a place. It's uh, I mean, some people maybe calls it call it the zone or right. something. But um, and 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 it's we have tools as as people uh, and as a poet, I use a lot of metaphor and imagery. Uh, in my own work on the mat and in my classes, um, to induce that state uh, in myself and in my students on Zoom. So, um, you know, there is, I think, a place where visceral and verbal are one, where we can experience, I'm trying to it's hard to to talk about, but it's it, poetry itself becomes a visceral, becomes a thing that can be felt. I mean, here we go to Dickinson's. You know, I know it's poetry. The top of my head comes off. Right? <laughs> uh, that that chill up the spine and that 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 top of the head lifting off. Uh, that that is what she defined as poetry, and, um, and so I like to see just really everything as poetry and poetry in motion and so what's 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 to um what is to define what is the difference between poetry and yoga i i really think that uh, it's all one thing
0: that's so interesting do you want to tell our listeners tell me
1: what what yoganetics is the
0: system that you developed
1: it's a uh yoganetics is a it's a combination of words. Obviously, uh, I, I'm such a, a word word um, nerd, I guess, is the new <laughs> word for it. Um, uh, so yoga and kinetic, yoganetics. Uh, it sounds a little bit more aerobic than um, it is. It's in fact the slowest yoga around, but it focuses, hence yoganetics, kinetic, on the motion between positions. So we're interested in transition, not position, and that is is where our um, I think the greatest distinction lies. The work is all done with the eyes closed. Hence, uh, it's mostly a reclining, sitting, kneeling but mostly reclining technique, either supine or, um, either supine or uh, prone, and uh, uh, with the eyes closed so we can really move into the body because most of us treat the body as an object, uh, as a shape of something that we see in a mirror, and we move it around and we hit different poses or positions. And that's mm-hmm. what, I'm sorry to say, a lot of American yoga at least has become <laughs> it's a matter of making a this beautiful position, and yes. uh, I'm. It, it's not the. It's not the where of it. It's not the position. It's not the destination. According to cliche, but it's it's the the transition, and it's the how of it. It's how do you go? It's the whole how of it, not the where of it, that counts. So by closing the eyes, we can really begin to experience. The body from the inside out, not from the skin in, and, uh, and learn again and anew, and many of us for the first time, uh, how to breathe and how to be and where core is and how to move from the core outward. And it's kind of, I mean, I, I think it's revolutionary. It certainly has been in my life, and it certainly is continuing to be revelationary, <laughs> to, uh, I make up words in yoga class all the time, and I get to do that because I am a poet. So, <laughs> I have my poetic license somewhere in a purse somewhere.
0: Absolutely, but, yes. I think yeah. you get to do that. Yeah. So that's that, Thank you so much for for explaining that. I ha- I have done a little yoga, and I I definitely that sounds really nice.
1: Yeah, it really is nice. <laughs> You and
0: I first met a few years ago at AWP, and it was mm. my first AWP. It, and I oh, remember- it was mine too. Oh, wasn't was too. Yes. Oh wow. <laughs> yeah, I was just uh, I was sort of in awe of everything. It was the first time I had ever been anywhere where you know everyone was a writer or an editor. It was just it's like oh my people.
1: Yes. <laughs> Here they are. Yes. Yes. Yeah. And it was. I had the f- same feeling, and of course, I'm not a, a univ- I'm not an academic poet. I mean, I got my BFA in dance. I did get. They gave me a prize because I double. I, I wrote a senior thesis in literature, so they gave me a prize for that. But um, <laughs> they, uh, I mean, I was. I don't have any degrees as a writer, and I don't have an academic background as a writer, um, which isn't to say I don't have a, a an overflowing library or three <laughs> or more uh, <laughs> to to educate myself from. So. Uh, so I so I hadn't never felt at home at AWP being a, a mainly college uh, and university program for all the folks who already know each other. Yeah. But uh, I, I had a blast, and I've gone ever since, except when I couldn't and have been uh, elsewise. Yeah, it's you know it's
0: really fun for me. I think because as a managing editor, I end up corresponding with a lot of the writers we publish but but I you know I never get to meet them in person and so huh. I was amazed by how, how at ease I felt at AWP because I was like, oh I know this person and this person and you know I had never met yes, them before but yes, you know, yes. through the magazine. It, the magazine really did away with any sort of imposter syndrome I had about as like about attending <laughs> as a writer. <laughs> because I could just attend as an editor and feel like that that made made sure that I fit in a little bit.
1: Yeah. Oh, it was so lovely meeting you. I remember and the common gives the greatest parties. <laughs> so, uh, thank you yeah it was a lot of fun to meet you.
0: I also remember when I met you I was just sort of in awe because I was you know just absorbing AwP and 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 when I met you I was like, I am talking to the poet laureate of Kansas <laughs> I was ah. sort of Starstruck can you tell us a little bit oh, about? Yes what a po- poet laureate does?
1: Like what was, what was that time like for you? Yeah. Well, I should pull out my sunglasses now, but uh, <laughs> yes. it's just hard to go out into public, but um, it, <laughs> it, it was actually a great challenge for me um, uh, moving from uh, practitioner to ambassador. Totally. Uh, that was a huge leap for me as an introvert. And so many of us are Writers are introverts, and uh, and that's something we all face. How do I move from private to public? And it's something that we need to. Uh, it's a process we need to befriend because, uh, and it's probably one of the reasons I became a teacher, so I could learn to deal with groups in a in a way that was uh, felt safe uh, for me. And so um, that kind of became. I'm going off on another tangent. Is that all right? Uh, it, it became That's my okay. mission. It became my mission in life to bring people home to poetry and to bring poetry home to people. And it's funny because as soon as I defined that mission and it's been a lifelong process, uh, not that I've been looking for it, but I've always had you know, the things I do and love. But once that crystallized, I, I immediately became Poet Laureate. I mean, it's it, it sort of, That it was a highly competitive process, Mm -hmm. but uh, I became, and that became my project was bringing people home to poetry and poetry home to people, and exploring what is home, where is home, and how does it intersect with poetry. So it was a wonderful thing. I I got to visit. um, Well, bringing people to poetry. That's that's that. That moved me to drive uh, about over ten thousand miles in a state that's four hundred miles wide, uh, giving uh, roughly seventy programs to towns from Kansas City to Dodge City, Wyatt Wyater. Thank you very much, and uh, and and so people could gather and listen to and talk about important things, because that's, you know, what poetry does. It gives us a a means to talk about important things. We can just cut through the chatter right away and uh, talk about what does home mean to you, and, uh, you know, along the way, I got to dodge a lot of tornadoes and blizzards, and (laughs) I slept in a silo. That was a new experience. I slept (laughs) in a silo. They had taken the grain out, so that's good, because I wouldn't have made it through the night if <laughs> I had not oh removed goodness. the grain but um and I read to a dog and it was so much fun and then to bring people to bring poetry home to people Well, how do you get poetry home to people besides selling books right so newspapers because at that time newspapers were still big in Kansas and small town papers are still big in Kansas um thank goodness and so I edited a um Uh, a a weekly newspaper column called Home Words, Home Words, one word, capital Mm -hmm. W-O-R-D-S. And um, that was getting, you know, poetry to kitchen tables across the state. And uh, it was syndicated statewide and poets uh, submitted the, Poems uh, the American Sankane is the form we used on the theme of home from micro to macro so micro to macro what is home so the mobile home of the body that's the first place we call home and then the house that encloses the body right to the that, then to the land that holds the house and then to the sky that enfolds it all and so that that was a really fun. Um, column to edit and get people thinking, you know, from little to big about home. And it was just a wonderful, I mean, I just had a ball being Poet Laureate. And uh, and because my mission was bigger than my problem of being shy and being an introvert uh, and needing quietude, uh, it, then it was all, let's just call it poetry. <laughs> <laughs> sure. So well, that, uh, it, that's it so nice to hear thing. yeah thanks
0: so you, you because you mentioned sleeping in a silo i I remember I think I remember reading in your bio that that you grew up on a farm or your grandparents had a farm is that right?
1: Yes, I did not grow up on the farm. I grew oh. up in Kansas City but I um my grandparents uh, well my ancestors this was my great grandfather and grandmother they homesteaded that was actually before the Homestead Act of 1860. <laughs> In Kansas, that was 1862, the Homestead Act. But anyway, they bought the place uh, for 25 cents an acre. And it's still in the family now, uh, 150 oh, so years wonderful. later. And so it's just, uh, you know, we have a couple hundred acres. And uh, um, it's, you know, I, I, I'm i ashamed to say I, I've, I've spent more time there, in a sense, when I lived in New York than I do now. Because I was so thirsty for mm. green, I was so thirsty for sky that I just I would come home and I'd go straight to the farm and and just uh, unspool. And now that we live and flank the woods here and we have the stars and everything, uh, I don't have such a need to to go there. But we do we go there for writing retreats, um, self you know self. Mm. I mean, uh, all of life is a writing retreat in this house, <laughs> but, um, so, uh, but, you know, it's nice to change environments and to get some space, uh, into the new.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I, I really, I relate to that feeling of like needing, needing, like thirsting for the green. Like you said, um, I, I grew up on a, a my family's farm. My parents were dairy farmers, oh. um, out, out here in Western Mass, and then you know I lived for quite a few years in in London in this in the city, and I would just every six months oh. or so I was like I have to, oh, I have yes. to get out
1: there. <laughs> oh yes, and London is just so uh, monotone. Uh, it's so gray. It's yeah, well, it's it, New it is York, pretty gray. It's, yeah. But it's even grayer with the uh, with the weather as it is. But <laughs> oh, tough. yeah, yeah. I used to-
0: I used to teach, um, SAT prep classes to, um, to like posh kids in private schools, like really like Hogwartsy private schools around England. And so oh my. every couple months I would get to take the train out, out of the city. And for a couple of weeks I would, you know, teach at these places off and on. And I was always just so, so excited to be out, out in the countryside and oh, see, yeah, yeah. seeing some green, seeing some animals.
1: Oh, Absolutely. Get some sky overhead. That's how I felt a little bit when I lived in, uh, Uh, Manhattan when I then moved to Brooklyn and and could see actual sky Um, (laughs) that that was just a revelation
0: absolutely so I also met your your husband Roderick at at that AWP at my first AWP
1: yeah it's hard to miss him (laughs) hard to miss both of you (laughs) well he's just for those who haven't met him yet he's seven feet tall so and, is, he really, is
0: he really seven feet
1: tall yeah well he may have he may have lost an inch or so uh but we're going to get that back through yoga um <laughs> oh, I see. and in fact when he studies yoga he starts bumping his head on everything on the, all the doorways again but when he <laughs> that's fascinating when he oh yeah it it absolutely makes you taller you know elongating the spine and pulling the, the uh, secondary curves out but um but he is uh, unmissable in a crowd. And that is why I met him in a, at a poetry reading in New York City at the West Side Y. I, In fact, I, I entered the room and I saw him sitting down. He was the first person I saw. Him, and he was sitting. <laughs> he was still the tallest person in the room. And then he came over at intermission and he and and my God, I stood up and. And I stood up and I stood up and I still had to look up. And that was <laughs> a shock for me. I'm I'm on the tall side myself. I'm over six feet. So um, it, it was, um, well, it was a dream come true.
0: <laughs> it's so perfect that you just told that story because the question I was going to ask you is um, because Facebook, we're Facebook friends and Facebook showed me this photo of the two of you 35 years ago being married by Mr. Rogers, Fred Rogers himself. (laughs) I know there has to be a good story there. Would you tell me how Mr. Rogers came to be your wedding officiant?
1: Yeah. Well, first of all, he's a Presbyterian minister. Okay. I had no idea. Oh yes. And his ministry became children's television, that he was authorized by the Presbytery, if that's what you call it, to, um, to, uh, that that his ministry in particular would be children's television. And so that's what he was ordained to do, uh, getting the exception that he did get uh, being who he is. But uh, Roderick was a journalist at the time uh, who also wrote books, but he did, interviewed Fred a number of times uh, and they got along, you know, <laughs> like, uh, the analogy is escaping me, but uh, <laughs> you know, they're very similar. Let's just put right. it that. Their sensibilities are very similar. Nice. And and of course I like um, millions of people had formed a very special relationship with Fred through the television. And when I was living in New York and hearing all day that I was too tall for this role and too tall for that role and getting a mm-hmm. lot of rejections in auditions. And I'd come home and hear that I was just right the way I was. And so, um, we, we became friends and he flew in a blizzard to help marry us in Brooklyn. Imagine. (laughs) And, uh, and it was so, I mean, it was just, it was just so lovely. We had a string quartet there that we had arranged the music of, um, it's such a good feeling to know you're alive to be oh, our recessional nice. after after we kissed oh, amazing. and uh, to to go down the aisle back down the aisle with after we were married and it was just um it's, and he became our daughter's godfather also oh, um, nice. so we we kept in touch and saw each other over the years i i still talk about him in the present tense because um Frankly, I talk to him every day. And in something mm-hmm. of a of an independent miracle, um, Grace, my, my daughter, and well, she married Spencer Lott, a puppeteer who is on Sesame Street and elsewhere, uh, just amazing talent there. Uh, they were commissioned to make the puppets for the Fred Rogers movie oh, starring yeah. Tom Hanks. And so Tom also puppeteered with... I mean so Spencer also puppeteered with Tom in the movie and so wow. and the, the puppets that they made in and they they got to go into the museum and and, and, and hold and measure all of the original puppets oh, the original. and they were they were all duplicates which everyone thought were the originals, which was the highest compliment uh, yeah <laughs> and so that was just a kind of that was just
0: yeah that's you know, wonderful
1: a, 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 another kind of miracle.
0: Yeah, I certainly, certainly grew up watching it a lot. We did not, on the, on the family farm, we did not have cable television. So <laughs> I
1: watched a lot of public television and I read a lot of books. Oh, marvelous. So you kind of came up with him. I, I'm a little older. I did not come up with him.
0: Yeah, I, I definitely did. I was born in 1986. So. Oh, my. Yeah, I was peak oh. public television. <laughs> oh, my. Well, I'm, that
1: was a very good year. That was the year we married. So. Oh perfect. Yeah, so sp- <laughs> we're yeah. talking about when <laughs> a
0: very fortuitous <laughs> year then.
1: <laughs> well.
0: So we're wrapping up, but I always have one last question for everyone, which is just to, to find out what you're working on now and, and what's next from you.
1: Um now I'm doing a lot of music projects recently. Um my opera, my opera, isn't that fun to say? My opera, um, for which I did the libretto uh, called Snow Angel. Um, with music by wonderful composer Bonnie McClarty, just went up at the Lead Center at the University of Kansas, and so there was singers and an orchestra, there was a conductor and a director, and just a whole crew of people. Of course, it was virtual, um, but they had four cameras, and it was, you know, it's really a lovely, and important uh, uh, event for me, very special. And then I'm also working with um, a Dutch composer who lives in Belgium, who happened to see uh, the Scientific American in a coffee shop and read the poem and, and, and oozed into a four-hour um, session at a co- where he drank more and more coffee and wrote more and more. And he's turned it into a song and he has a big band and he's using a lot of my, he's bought a lot of my poems and he's going to be commissioning some. Uh, with his big band, which he conducts and also plays trombone for, um, on the universe. So this is a whole cosmic kind of suite, tentatively called the universe suite, bad title, but we'll we'll get a better title. And and, uh, it'll be having PowerPoint and singers and big band and and an astronomer that he knows is going to do the narration. And it's going to be... um, Touring uh, Belgium and Holland, so wow. that's that's kind of really uh, thrilling for me, and uh, and then I've, of course the next book is um, it's called the Country in the Mirror, and uh, this was this is the title poem that I've been writing for a number of years, but uh, I was first commissioned it to uh, by Unity Church to help. Um, let me just say the word, recover from hmm. the presidential election of 2016. Uh, little did we know that we'd have more recovering to do yeah. in the most recent presidential election. So it's, it's quite pertinent. Um, it's not a political book. It's a, uh, let's just say, metaphysical kind of poetry. Um, but uh, I, I just loved that assignment from from a church to help us recover from yeah. the trauma of an election, <laughs> and uh, it's almost ready to go to market. So uh, That's great. I'm having a great time here, and That's and great. thank you, Emily. I, I just must thank you so much. I love the Commons so much. You know, it's uh, I love its sense of place, and it is a place. I, I mean, if if you haven't, I suppose many of our Listeners have read The Common, but if you haven't, I mean, it is the most beautiful book to open with exquisite end papers that fold in and just gorgeous, gorgeous everything about it. It's just a lovely experience in the hand to hold, and it itself is a beautiful place to dwell. So please uh, go run and and subscribe to this beautiful magazine. And Emily, I think the world of your fiction, I'm so happy for you and all the uh, accolades that you're getting there.
0: Oh, I'm blushing so much over here in Massachusetts. Oh, come on. (laughs) No, it's so lovely to hear that. You know, we work so hard on the magazine at the Common, and I'm always thrilled when it shows up. But, you know, I think nowadays there's so much content out there. I hate to call it that content, but, like, there's so much coming out all the time, and and it's it's so nice to hear that that people are are vibing with with what we're publishing and and what we're putting out, you know, both physically and online and stuff. Oh,
1: it's just – And certainly
0: for me, too, as a writer, you know, to feel like, you know, the things you put together are are landing with
1: some people is, you know, the goal. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you so much for all the invisible work behind the curtain. It
0: it is my pleasure. I feel, uh, you know, you were saying that you feel so, so blessed to be able to do what you do and be in this writing home. And I feel very blessed to have, uh, you know, a writing community built in around me by, by being in a magazine and, and, and working in, in that, working in that world, even on the days where I don't write anything, I'm always, you know doing something with language and literature, so I feel lucky, yeah. Yeah. Well, Wyatt Townley, thanks so much for joining us. It's been so great to talk with you, so much fun.
1: Likewise, Emily.
0: Listeners, you can read Wyatt's poems and subscribe to the latest issue of The Common at thecommononline.org.